Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Armageddon. Not a word I enjoy hearing from a U.S. president. The lead starts right now. President Biden warns of a potential nuclear, quote, Armageddon in the wake of threats from Vladimir Putin and the defeat of his forces in Ukraine. The first time since 1962's Cuban Missile Crisis, the president says, that there's a direct threat of the use of a nuclear weapon. What is this terrifying warning based upon? Plus, a new stunner in Uvalde, Texas. First, an officer fired after a bombshell CNN report. Now the school system is suspending its entire police department. And a new strong jobs report showing more Americans employed and earning more money. So might this set up another hike in your interest rates as the Fed tries to tame rising inflation? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. A bone-chilling warning of a nuclear, quote, Armageddon tops our world lead. President Biden made that frank assessment at a private fundraiser last night, invoking the nuclear brinksmanship of the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago this month. As volatile Russian dictator Vladimir Putin loses his grip on his bloody, unprovoked war against Ukraine and threatens to deploy catastrophic weapons. Senior U.S. officials were caught completely off guard, they say, but by what some might characterize as inartful, perhaps even in some views, escalatory comments. They insist there's no new piece of intelligence that raises the nuclear threat level above where it's been. Still, President Biden says he does not see a clear off-ramp for Putin. And U.S. officials think even if Putin uses the smallest tactical nuke available, it could trigger a chain reaction and create consequences that could lead to a global nuclear disaster. And as CNN's Phil Manningly reports for us now, the president's daunting comments offer a rare window into a White House trying to predict a madman's next move. The warning was as stark as it was startling. President Biden at a private New York City fundraiser warning of the potential for nuclear Armageddon. As Russian President Vladimir Putin faces battlefield defeats and launches new rhetorical threats. Biden sharply diverging from his top advisors in his willingness to detail the risks they've acknowledged are real. Our administration has been clear that there is a risk given all of the loose talk and the nuclear saber rattling by Putin that he would consider this. But also not imminent. We do not presently see indications about the imminent use of nuclear weapons. Officials tell CNN that hasn't changed, despite the vivid nature of Biden's warnings. We have not seen any reason to adjust our own nuclear posture. And to this point, no comments from Biden on the issue since the remarks were released. There is no new intelligence showing Putin has decided to use nuclear weapons or is preparing to do so, sources say. Yet Biden's warning, comparing this moment to the last time the world was on the nuclear brink, underscores the growing concern inside the White House about what Putin may do if backed in the corner. 
The risks and the administration's contingency planning for them have been present since the opening days of the invasion, officials say. With White House officials watching Putin's speech announcing the sham annexation of Ukrainian territory, we're struck not just by the implicit nuclear threats, but by a leader completely untethered from reality, something Biden's national security advisor hinted at last week. It's, it's raving. And has been a central point of deliberations in the days since, officials say. The kind of irresponsible rhetoric we have seen is no way for the leader of a nuclear-armed state to speak. And that's what the president was making very clear about. Jake, it's tough to miss the venue in which these remarks were made. Not in a major speech or address, not in a press conference. This was made in a private donors meeting uh, at a private New York City residence. And to be some, to some degree, that's become a feature, not a bug. The president has regularly spoken a little bit more candidly in those meetings. Officials say they acknowledge, at least, that it is in those meetings that the president can give you brief windows of what's really being discussed and debated behind the scenes, sometimes even if it's a little bit different than the public message, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Former CIA chief of Russian operations, Steve Hall, joins us now. Steve, good to see you. The White House is trying to identify an off-ramp for Putin. Do you see the only two options, humiliation for Putin or escalating using a nuclear weapon? In his mind, I mean? No, Jake, I think it's, it's probably more complex than that, even in Vladimir Putin's mind. And we have to keep in mind, of course, that, you know, what goes on in the Kremlin is somewhat of a black box. It's very difficult to get that information. But, you know, when we talk about off ramps, let me start with the phrase of, you know, Putin being backed into a corner. I think it's a little bit of a false premise. Really, all he has to do is get behind his borders into Russia. Now, I don't mean to be simplistic. There is going to be a price to pay for that. But the question is, is you know, which is which is easier, which is more devastating for Vladimir Putin to have to retreat from Ukraine where it didn't go very well for him at all? Or will he lose his entire regime and perhaps even his life in the process? In, in my mind, Putin's going to go with his regime and his own personal interests as opposed to, you know, being embarrassed about having to retreat from Ukraine, Jake. So President Biden called this the highest nuclear alert since the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago when the Soviets were putting missiles in Cuba aimed at Florida. Um, what do you make of that comparison? Is it, is it accurate? I think it's reflective of what really all of us are trying to do, which is walk this fine line between recognizing that, of course, a thermonuclear war would be catastrophic. Tactical nuclear weapons used in Ukraine wouldn't be much better. So you have to take it seriously. But I think it's really important what came after the president's comments, which was the entire administration is saying, look, we are not changing our, in the United States, nuclear posture because we haven't seen any changes at all in Russia's nuclear posture. So in terms of what the facts on the ground are, we have yet to see evidence that Putin is mobilizing his nuclear forces. Let's talk about potential tactical nukes, uh, because I think it's something that we're thankfully not very familiar with. Uh, tactical nukes are much, much smaller than, for instance, the mushroom cloud style bomb used by the U.S. in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. What do they do? How much damage do they inflict? That's an excellent question. And the reason it's such a good question is because we really don't know much about them. We got rid of ours a number of years ago. The Russians kept theirs. Um, but I think most analysts assess that, of course, there's a big psychological impact when you use a nuclear weapon. And depending on the size of it, there can be an impact, obviously, on the battlefield. I don't think Ukraine's going to stop fighting uh, if, a if a tactical nuclear weapon is exploded. But what is going to happen to Vladimir Putin and his regime is he's going to come under incredible international pressure, and not just from the West, where it usually comes from, but from also his so-called friends, the Chinese, the Indians, and others like that, who are going to be very upset if, and, and concerned, I think, if he chooses that route. 
You heard in Phil Manningly's report that the White House studied Putin's latest speech incredibly closely, looking for clues, trying to figure out what he might do. As a former intelligence officer, tell us, what would those clues look like from from Putin? I can tell you, as a former intelligence officer, you know, that's that's the holy grail. 30 years, you know, everybody's trying to find out what is going inside of in Putin's mind. And I can tell you, it's it's truly, again, a black box. It's incredibly difficult. But I think what you have to do is look and say, okay, what's the most likely thing that's going on? And, you know, I don't think the most likely thing that's going on is him planning for a nuclear strike. What is going on is how he can best leverage that threat. And when you get the American president to make those kinds of comments, that shows you how strong that weapon can be psychologically. So most people watching did not live through the Cuban Missile Crisis or don't remember it, at least. I don't imagine you uh, know it from firsthand experience. But tell us what it means when President Biden says this is the worst it's been in terms of the potential use of a nuclear weapon since 1962. What does that conjure up for you? You know, what it conjures up for me is, again, this reminder uh, for all of us who are sort of used to the post-World War II status quo of security arrangements that were made between great powers after the Second World War. And then you had the Cuban Missile Crisis, which kind of brought everybody, you know, it was a shock to the system. I think we're seeing a similar shock to the system. But again, I think when the president says we're closer to nuclear war, the question is, are we 90 percent closer or are we 2 percent closer? Again, you have to take it seriously. You can't be flip about it. But the, the question is, are the, are the Russians, do we have information that the Russians are preparing a strike or, you know, moving in that direction? And as of right now, we still don't. William Cohen, who was a Republican senator from Maine and then the secretary of defense for the Clinton administration, he told CNN that once you start talking regularly about using nuclear weapons, it becomes normalized. Is that what's going on here, do you think, by the president? You know, that 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 may be some of what of what's going on. Um, I can tell you that Vladimir Putin hopes it doesn't become normalized because, again, (laughs) he's sort of blessed and cursed. He's got these huge weapons that he can do incredible damage with, but he can't really use them yet without really, really serious backlash. So Putin wants to keep talking about it. He doesn't want us to become inured to it. He wants us to become nervous about it, which we are uh, correctly so. But again, I keep saying, I think we're still quite a ways away from him actually contemplating that. And I don't think it would go over very well inside of Russia if he chose that route. All right, Steve Hall, thanks so much for joining us, as always. Appreciate it. Now in Ukraine, the death toll is rising as rescue workers pull bodies out of the rubble of an apartment building in Zaporizhia hit by Russian missiles on Thursday. So far, officials count at least 14 dead. Just south of Zaporizhia, CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports from the town of Duchakny, a part of the more than 900 square miles of liberated land, according to Ukraine. We want to warn viewers, some of these images depicting Putin's bloody war you might find disturbing. Just ahead is Russia in retreat. The road cut by a bridge blown four days ago as they fled. A lightning Ukrainian advance along the riverbank here. Russian jets firing back. Kiev's forces again moving around an enemy stuck in park and reverse. Left in Russia's wake, this older anti-aircraft system still working, we're told, and the tatty signs of how they lived in the open. In Duchani, 
a rush to gather the harvest. Since March, the Russians moved in next door, until Monday, when they seemed to have ditched even their clothes. The air is only slightly freer now, but still here, they spent last night underground. At night, it's hardest, he says. You just don't know who's shooting where. We brought our food down here so it doesn't get torched. Most of his wife's family live in Russia, but here, the Russians came to live next door to them. One night, drunk and armed. One came out and said, who are you? Waving his gun at us, she says. He was drunk. It was pretty dangerous, adds Vladimir. They are literally in the crossfire here. The less you know, the longer you live, says Kolya, under the trees, worried about drones. We lived a good life, never touched anyone. All along the road, the detritus of a failing empire on the run. The Ukrainians struggling to keep up with what was left behind. Here, in Havlivka, on Sunday, they took 50 prisoners, including newly mobilized conscripts. This soldier's home is literally in sight, in occupied land, so he doesn't show his face. Your house is just over there. There's no greater motivation, he says. We didn't ask them to come here. Home, everyone home. It is our land. Remember the smell of your home. It's chess. Mama! For others, home is almost a trap. Mama! Luba is stuck here as her 92-year-old mother can't walk. She's hidden under the bedding. They have only milk and biscuits to eat. And when they're shelling, there's no basement. So Luba just lies on top of Mama. Imagine not being able to move when the ground is shaking. She covers her again, so she doesn't fall out of bed when she goes out. Outside, the highway is busy. However fast Ukraine moves through here, nothing can be undone or bring the old silence back. It's important to accentuate, Jake, just as we're hearing this nuclear bombast uh, from Moscow continually and the concerns that's raising internationally, their conventional army is doing utterly appallingly on the ground, losing hundreds of square miles, it appears, just in the south alone. And that's a reflection, frankly, of its military strength across the board. And while nobody would want to play down or dismiss the potential nuclear threat Russia could bring, there are obviously some asking questions about how effective that part of its military may be if its air force is barely seen in the skies and its ordinary military is struggling to get food or fuel to a matter of hundreds of miles from its own border. Jake? All right, CNN's Nick Payton Walsh in Ukraine. Thank you so much. Also in the world lead, a strong message from the committee that awards the Nobel Peace Prize. This year's award is going to a human rights group from Ukraine and another one from Russia and a third who's in jail in Belarus the very country helping Putin with his invasion of Ukraine. All three were honored for their outstanding efforts to document war crimes, human rights abuses, and the abuse of power. 
Center for Civil Liberties is the group from Ukraine that earned the prize. In a Facebook post today, the head of the group called for an international tribunal to bring Putin to justice, along with Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko and other war criminals. The Russian group honored today is called Memorial. The Human Rights Watchdog group was founded after the fall of the Soviet Union. Its leader spoke in Moscow today after Russian courts shut down the group last year. The activist from Belarus has documented human rights abuses in his country since the 1980s. He was arrested in 2020 for protesting against the Lukashenko regime. Coming up next, today's positive jobs report and why so many economists were actually dreading this specific outcome. Plus, two men who warn America's political divisions could put the U.S. on the verge of its next civil war. And a North Carolina community that may help set a new national standard for responding to mental health emergencies. Stay with us. We're back with our money lead in the U.S. jobs market, which is, quote, slowing gracefully. That's what one economist told CNN after a report showed the number of new jobs fell for a second straight month, but still provided more jobs than expected. Uh, Let's bring in CNN's Matt Egan. Matt, once again, good news, very good news, but some bad news. Uh, Help us understand the numbers here. Yeah, Jake, we are still in this weird economic moment, right? The economy and the jobs market got so hot the end of last year and earlier this year that we actually need them to cool off. Otherwise, inflation is going to keep crushing families and businesses and our retirement accounts. Now, today's report showed the U.S. economy added 263,000 jobs last month. That is a slowdown. That is a step in the right direction, but it's really just a baby step. The unemployment rate actually went down to 3.5%. That is tied for the lowest since 1969. Now, some economists say unemployment actually has to rise to 6% before inflation is going to be back under control. The good news, especially for Main Street, is today's report shows it is still a good moment if you're looking for jobs right now. I mean, hiring is strong and firing is relatively uncommon. I think the bad news is that nothing about today's report is going to deter the Federal Reserve from slamming the brakes on the economy. The jobs market just is still too hot. Matt, we keep hearing warnings of a recession, uh, including again from uh, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. Listen to what he told CNN. I think it's more likely than not that sometime in the next year or 18 months, uh, we will have a recession. Historical experience suggests that uh, the kind of inflation we have rarely returns to normal levels, to target levels of around 2% without some kind of recession. Summers and others have have been saying this for months now. What do you make of it? Well, Jake, I think there's a timing issue. Uh, Most of the economists that I talk to, they don't think the U.S. economy is in recession right now. I mean, nothing about today's jobs report screams recession. But everyone acknowledges that recession risks going forward are rising and they are elevated. I mean, even the Fed is basically acknowledging that. I think one really important thing to remember here is that Fed policy works with a lag. It doesn't hit the economy right away. It takes six to nine months before each of these interest rate hikes actually plays out in the economy. And so the concern that Larry Summers and everyone else has is that the Fed won't know that it's gone too far with these rate hikes until it's too late. All right, Matt Egan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, quoted in court, the chilling words prosecutors say were written in a letter to Donald Trump by the leader of the far right militia, the Oath Keepers. Stay with us. 
In our politics lead, federal prosecutors presented new evidence to a jury today that Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes called for a, quote, bloody civil war, unquote, to keep then-President Donald Trump in office even after he was defeated in 2020. Rhodes, along with four other members of the far-right militia group, are on trial for sedition for their roles in the deadly capital attack. CNN's Whitney Wilde reports on the explosive testimony in court today. Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the far-right group The Oath Keepers, was the focus of today's testimony in the seditious conspiracy trial. Prosecutors presented letters they say he wrote to then-President Donald Trump in December 2020. The chilling words addressed directly to the former president read, War isn't coming. War is already here. Strike now. If you fail to act while you are still in office, we the people will have to fight. The letter, written around the same time, Rhodes appeared at the so-called Jericho March in D.C. in December 2020. If he does not do it now, while he is commander-in-chief, we're going to have to do it ourselves later in a much more desperate, much more bloody war. Let's get it on now while he is still the commander-in-chief. The letters were signed by Rhodes and Kelly Sorrell, the self-described general counsel for the Oath Keepers, who is also now facing federal charges. Prosecutors have leaned heavily on audio secretly recorded in the lead-up to January 6, including from a virtual meeting Rhodes hosted just days after the 2020 election. There's no such thing as another election in this country of any meaningful uh, sense of term if you let this stand. The meeting's purpose, preparing for battle at a pro-Trump rally on November 14th. He has to know that the people are behind him, that he will not be deserted. And he has to have positive pressure. But we got to be in D.C. you got to be willing to go to D.C. and street fight Antifa. Prosecutors also presented a text Rhodes wrote in late December that said, they won't fear us until we come with rifles in hand. The defense continues to argue the Oath Keepers viewed their role as peacekeepers trying to protect Trump supporters. We just have to see. I mean, this is a marathon, not a sprint. So, you know, every day, you know, more information comes out and, and um, we'll just see how that all plays out. The defense has also leaned into this theory that at several pro-Trump rallies, there were not acts of violence committed by members of the Oath Keepers, Jake. All right, Winnie Wild, great reporting. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Major Garrett. He's the chief Washington correspondent for CBS News, along with David Becker. He's the executive director of the Center for Election Innovation. They are the authors of the brand new book, The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie, which is a a challenge for all of us, including you at home watching us. Uh, Major, you write about Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes in your book and this failed violent coup on January 6th. You also note, quote, Democracies don't always die violently. Most die because rules are bent by authoritarians acting in defense of the rule of law. And I'm guessing what the argument you're making here is that's kind of what we're seeing going on in the U.S. right now with these election deniers running and, and, and winning offices. There are danger signs that we write about, Jake, and we warn the American public about those danger signs. And we say... Elections in this country procedurally now are being conducted more transparently, more verifiably, and more auditably than ever before. They should have a higher degree of confidence than ever before. That doesn't exist. It's dangerous. We warn strongly against it. And we further warn that if those who deny election results baselessly get into positions of power, they will have influence 
to change election results, thereby thwarting the will of the people, a true danger to our democracy. Yeah, indeed. And, and David, you've described this book as a love letter to democracy, but it's also a warning about what the future could hold as a result of people who peddle election lies, getting power. You open uh, the book by imagining a possible future, January 2023, when the pressures arising from midterm elections could, could rip the country apart. You write, quote, our next civil war is stalking us. We can stop it. We must stop it. Or we, as an ideal and as a spirit will, in Abraham Lincoln's words, surely perish from this earth. Uh, I think there are probably a lot of people out there who say that sounds a little much. That's a little hyperbolic. But you, you really believe that, that American democracy is at risk here. Yeah, this is not a prediction, but it's a possible path that we're hopefully warning people about. We just had a report from The New York Times this week that uh, many people we're seeing more chatter about civil war on social media than ever before. And whether it's civil war in the sense of a violent con uh, conflict or whether it's more a, a dissolution of the union that we've enjoyed for nearly 250 years, when people stop believing that elections are secure just because their candidate didn't win, and that's what we've got right now. There's no evidence of any problem with the election. We had the most secure, transparent, and verified election in American history with the highest turnout ever in the middle of a global pandemic. The men and women professionals who run elections did a remarkable job, and yet tens of millions of people are being lied to about that election. And once we get to the point where we don't believe any election is secure unless our candidate wins, the next natural step is potentially political violence. And Major, a new Washington Post analysis found that a majority of Republican nominees on the ballot this November in House, Senate, or statewide races have either denied the outcome of the 2020 election or questioned it right. in some way. You spoke with election officials across the country about the effect of these election lies for the book. This is what Bucks County, Pennsylvania Commissioner Bob Harvey told you, quote, I think if you wanted to destroy democracy, the first thing you do is turn members of that country against each other. The second thing you do is get people to start doubting the validity of the elections. You do those two things and democracy falls apart, unquote. How afraid are you about the future of our democracy? I believe election workers, election administrators do a great service to this country, Jake, and they are the backbone, they are the strength, they're the guardians of democracy. I believe in them and I believe in millions of Americans who vote locally, understand the process and believe in it. But I do fear this denialism, if it infects our politics and becomes just another stratagem on the chessboard of politics, and either side or both sides inhabit a world in which they're only satisfied and will only respect an election outcome if their side prevails, then we will systematically dissolve and then destroy our democracy. And David, one of the interesting things about that analysis by the Washington Post is it includes two, it's two groups uh, of Republicans. One is people who just lie about the election or they're wrong and deluded and just say it was stolen or whatever. And then there's the questioners. And these questioners, these Republican questioners, to me, a lot of them are people who know better but are afraid mm -hmm. that if they don't at least come out with, oh, it was rigged in a different way because Twitter wouldn't let the New York Post publish, a, you know, publicize the Hunter Biden story or whatever, but they go along with it in a way that makes them feel comfortable, but they're still playing along with the lie. I almost find them more cynical players than the deniers. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I can see why you would think that. I mean, if you look at a state, there's a Maricopa County uh, member of the Board of Supervisors, a Republican named Clint Hickman, who uh, just in the last couple of days 
someone was indicted for having threatened him very viciously in the aftermath of the 2020 election. And one of the things he asked is, why haven't more Republicans stood up, more members of my fellow party stood up and told the truth? Um, one of the bright sides is there have been many who have, and there have been many who have done their duty. Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, Al Schmidt in Philadelphia, the, the Republicans on the Board of Supervisors in Maricopa County, Arizona, and many others. But there haven't been enough. And uh, that's one of the things that that political courage to speak the truth to their own voters is urgently needed right now in this perilous moment. And major Republicans are expected to do well in the upcoming midterm elections. Um, and there are a lot of election workers you spoke with in your book who are anxious about this, worried what that might mean. Yes, we talked to Ricky Hatch, who's in Utah, Utah, a safe Trump state. Ricky Hatch, who'd been an election administrator in, that, in his county, Weber County, for a long time, he was attacked. Not personally, but he had two acts of vandalism committed against him. And his own community, people who he grew up with his entire life, still doubt the election results there. And that's how deep this has gone. And he's afraid if Republicans prevail and win in the midterms, they'll say, see, aha, we were right all along. This is only a fair election because we lied about the 2020 election. He's afraid it will grow deeper into the marrow of the Republican Party. I only quote him directly saying that's a warning sign. We have many warning voices in our book, Jake. It doesn't have to be this way, but it could be. All right, Major Garrett, David Becker, the, the authors of the new book, The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. Buy it now. Thanks so much, guys. Good to see you. Coming up, the mega site set up in Florida for victims of Hurricane Ian and the simple requests that sadly may be a long time coming for people staying there. Stay with us. In our national lead, it has been just over nine days since Hurricane Ian made landfall in Florida and began leaving its path of destruction. At least 126 Floridians have died because of the storm. More than 100,000 residents remain without power. And now frustration is growing among those who need help the most from the government. CNN's Leila Santiago takes a closer look now at the struggles Floridians are facing as they try to get their lives back on track. It's been very stressful and overwhelming. Alexis Hinson has been living in a shelter now for 11 days. The kids are getting cranky. It's difficult to explain to them their new reality. Uncertainty is growing. It's hard to get your kids to real, realize what's going on when they're so young. Honestly, I don't really have a plan. Um, it's really just a waiting game right now. The family of three is staying at the Hertz Arena, a mega shelter in Lee County run by the Red Cross. Cameras not allowed inside here, but the Red Cross provided this video, which shows children, families, hundreds of cots. Organizers tell us about 500 people will be staying here tonight. The Red Cross is here for as long as need be. A big ask for many, just a warm shower the comforts of the home that Hurricane Ian took away. It's everything to someone now affected by the hurricane. I had my first nightmare, and it was about 2 o'clock this morning. Denise Griffin is also staying here. Her home in Fort Myers Beach was wiped away. A former paramedic and 911 dispatcher, she's frustrated by how mandatory evacuation orders played out. I wish we, I had known earlier, give me a couple of days, I could have walked off the island, but... We had less than 30 hours, and I have a bike. I don't have a car. While we were here, Florida's lieutenant governor stopped by. We asked her about the criticism and calls for accountability. We're going to engage on focusing on rebuilding. We're not going to criticize our local emergency managers. She says she wants to focus on making sure people have access to services they desperately need. FEMA's been integrated and an active partner every step of the way, so we're really pleased with the response. 
a long-term response for what's been a nightmare disaster. That nightmare you had? Water. I love the water, but not like that. And Jake, every single person we talked to today that's staying here asked me if I knew how long they were allowed to stay here. That speaks to that uncertainty. But a bit of good news, Florida Power and Light uh, saying today that 98% of power has been restored here. Jake? All right, Leila Santiago in Estero, Florida. Thank you so much. Coming up, uh, a must-see CNN report, the lifeline on standby in case of a mental health emergency. Could this be an effective way to prevent a police response from getting out of hand? The health lead, who do you call in a mental health crisis? A new poll by CNN and the Kaiser Family Foundation finds that 20% of Americans have dialed 911 because they or someone they knew needed help. Others say they would hesitate. 27% believe that that call might do more harm than good. It might escalate the situation. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta went to North Carolina, where one 911 call center is trying to make sure that that escalation does not happen. Durham 911, what's your emergency? 911. Dialing those three numbers activates one of the most sophisticated response systems anywhere in the world. Police, EMS, or the fire department shows up to your door within minutes in most cities. But what if the help you need is different? Less physical health, more mental. Good morning, my name is Jordan. I'm a counselor in the 911 call center. Okay. So what happens in these situations is that the 911 call gets diverted over here to Jordan because there's some concern that there may be a mental health component to it. Let me just kind of summarize what I heard to make sure I understand what's going on, okay? Jordan Heiler is a crisis response clinician here in Durham, North Carolina. And these are all the calls that are currently coming And she is part of something new, something increasingly necessary. It's called HART, Holistic Empathetic Assistance Response Team. So the goal is to say, look, if someone is dealing with um, a mental health crisis or yep. something like that, it should be treated differently than, than the standard 911 call? Yes, in the sense that we as clinicians have more training in mental health and just assessing people who are struggling with that. Has he ever hurt you physically? Yes. Okay. When was the last time? Last week when he pushed me to the floor. I'm so sorry. I feel kind of dangerous to myself, not anybody else. I would like to go talk to And too many calls like this one. A mother distraught calling 911 about her daughter. I have a 27-year-old daughter who has mental issues. Is she a danger to herself right now? I said, no, it doesn't appear. Do you feel unsafe? Do you feel like she's going to hurt you? No. I don't know what to do. And just like EMS, should the need arise, Hart goes into the field as well. So this is a community response team, and there's no weapons. No weapons Nobody's carrying weapons. No, no weapons. That's a different vibe right away, right? You see somebody approaching even, you know, if they're well-intentioned, if they're carrying a weapon and a a badge, it's a different feel. It's a different feel entirely, exactly. But we come truly open and wanting to engage. Ebena Bediaco, a mental health clinician, is teamed up with Allison Casey, NEMT, and Christopher Lawrence to provide peer support. 
We are off to see a neighbor who we've encountered before. Um, our initial encounter with him was through a trespass, 911. Um, someone had called about him living out on their property. This is, we're actually not far from the... the what you are witnessing is one of the most common calls they get, trespassing. And this is private property here, though? Yes. It's the Hart team works to defuse the situation. We'll let them know that we're helping you to move. They'll leave you alone. This pilot program was born, in part, after a tragedy that gripped the nation. George Floyd, there was obviously police sent, and we know what happened, tragically. Bro, you got him down, man. Let him breathe, at least, man. Let him breathe. Do you think that having a team like this would have made a difference in, in George Floyd's case? I think so. To have us there to advocate for him, possibly, um, to step into that space, for the neighbor and for the officers to just give a different perspective. Yeah. Let's see if we can provide a resource that you need right now in the moment yeah. um, so that it wouldn't escalate. If we can be that for them, even in that brief moment, it could save a life. Yeah. If Hart does deem a situation unsafe, it also has the option of dispatching a co-response team, which pairs police officers with a mental health clinician. But so far, there are no issues today. We are heading to the location. I notice you use the term neighbor. Is that is that how you refer to everyone that you're helping as a neighbor? Yes, yes, very intentional um, because they're not subjects, they're not patients or clients. Like it could be me that you all may have to help one day. It could be you, you know. So everyone's a neighbor. Everybody's a neighbor. And so the Heart Team works the streets, helping a community of neighbors, more anxious and depressed than ever, providing a dose of humanity. And yes, Heart. In the hopes they can help those who can't always help themselves. Got to tell you, Jake, it was really uh, great going out with them and, and seeing the work that they do, really gratifying work. Um, I think, you know, about 75% of the calls that they get are diverted from 911. And what was interesting, about half the time, they don't need to send someone out. So much of this can be handled over the phone, so that frees up resources. Fundamentally, Jake, it's about trying to decriminalize mental health. That's their sole focus. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta with an important report. Thank you so much. Another number can help. You can call our Texas Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988-988 if you or anyone you know needs to talk. Coming up next, the unexpected move made in Uvalde, Texas today in the wake of that horrific school massacre and the ongoing justified outrage in that community. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a second 16-year-old girl, an Iranian girl, who stood up for women's rights is dead. Amnesty International says she was beaten to death. Once again, Iranian officials claiming she jumped off a roof. Plus, Russian men fleeing their country to to avoid being drafted into war against Ukraine. We're going to go live to Kazakhstan, where hundreds of thousands of Russians have arrived in the past two weeks. And leading this hour, the Uvalde, Texas School District has suspended its entire police department months after that deadly school shooting where 19 children and two teachers were gunned down inside their classrooms. Just to be clear, this is not the city's police department. This is the force designated solely to protect the schools and students. It's a handful of officers. The announcement comes after CNN exclusive reporting that uncovered the school's police department had actually hired 
a Department of Public Safety officer who did not go into the school, even though she was one of the first officers to arrive at the school. That's there in the pictures you're seeing on your screen. She was fired after CNN's report. But the school district police had actually been informed that she was under investigation back in July. They went ahead and hired her anyway to protect Uvalde school children, some of whom had survived the shooting at Robb Elementary, adding to the growing outrage from parents who lost their children. CNN's Shimon Prokopes joins me. Shimon, it was your reporting earlier this week that exposed the newly hired officer for the school district had been under investigation. You've been following this story from the very beginning, doing incredible reporting. What happened today in Uvalde? Well, it's truly shocking, you know, Jake. Certainly no one expected this. Today, the uh, school announced that they were suspending the entire police force there that, as you said, patrols the the schools there, and they've suspended them all. They're basically going to remove them from the schools and put them on desk duty. So this was certainly a shocking development, not something anyone expected, but something that family members have been wanting for quite some time, Jake. And it was uh, not just firing, Shimon. One of the uh, department's administrators resigned today as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, the administrator, it's a man by the name of Ken uh, Miller. He's the number three uh, administrator at the school. What he does is, this is this is actually the lieutenant. This is Lieutenant Hernandez on your screen now. So just to be clear, this is the lieutenant who uh, did the vetting, the vetting of the officer that they hired, uh, who eventually got fired from the DPS. There's documentation that this lieutenant, Miguel Hernandez, received uh, a document received a letter from the DPS saying that he uh, that this officer was under investigation, but somehow they still hired him. And this is Ken Miller here uh, on your screen now. This is the man uh, who was put on leave and then now also resigned. This is us outside the school last week trying to ask him questions. Um, it's not entirely clear why they put him on leave, but it's believed to be connected to the hiring of that officer. So when they put him on leave, he decided that he was going to resign. And so he's the number three administrator at the school, Jake. Yeah, that was him refusing to answer any questions, which is just so symbolic of how all of these Uvalde authorities, or many of them, too many of them, have just refused any accountability or or transparency just to even answer basic questions. What's been the response from the families today? Tears. I, I, expect, I spoke to Brett Cross, who's been outside the school administration building for the entire week protesting, demanding these changes. They were shocked by this. They did not expect this kind of, of a fallout, certainly after our story. They're thankful uh, for the information. But, you know, this is something, Jake, as you said, that they've been asking for really in the days since the shooting. Uh, they've been wanting these officers removed from the schools. They don't trust them. They don't trust them to be around their children. Uh, they've also been asking for the administrators t- to be fired, some of them to be uh, removed from the school. So they truly did not expect this. And when you think about this, this is sort of the way this school has kind of behaved, how the administration has behaved really from the first day of since the shooting happened, when they refused to answer questions, kind of sort of hiding, not responding to any of our requests uh, for information. And so what really led up to this was the fact that they have been hiding all this. They knew that she was under investigation. They knew that this officer came from the DPS. The families were asking questions. They refused to answer any of those questions. And now look, you know, when you think about everything that they've been hiding and when it comes out, this is what happens. They have to fire people. They have to suspend people. They have to force people to resign. And so all of this happening really because of the fight, the fight by the parents, Jake. 
So if the school district police force, those four or five officers, are no longer on the job, who's in charge of protecting the students in Uvalde uh, on Monday when school is back in session? So it's the DPS, the Department of Public Safety. They've come to an agreement there since uh, school started here in September that they were going to allow these officers, troopers there to patrol the schools. But the agreement is based on the fact that none of these officers, these DPS officers who are on scene, 91 of them on scene uh, there at, on the day of the shooting, as long as none of those officers who are on scene will be patrolling the schools, the families felt it was okay, at least for now, for the DPS to be there on the school grounds. But certainly the parents are not comfortable with this. They're asking for more change and they're going to keep fighting, Jake, because still so many unanswered questions, certainly with the response by the Texas Department of Public Safety, the other law enforcement officials that were there on scene. I mean, when you think about this, Jake, we're almost five months into this and yet this is all still developing. All of this information is just now coming out. Just think about how much more there is that hasn't come out. And that's what the families are fighting for here. Shimon Prokopes, thank you so much. Great reporting as always. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Texas State Senator uh, Roland Gutierrez. Um, Senator, what do you make of the school district's decision to suspend uh, the school district's, uh, the school's entire police force? Uh, Well, thank you, Jake. First off, I'll tell you that it's a, a step in the right direction, probably four months too late. Uh, the confidence of these families and of the whole of city of Uvalde has just been uh, ripped apart. You know, and there is no confidence in the police uh, police department, in the school district or the local police or in the sheriff's department, or for that matter, the Department of Public Safety. Let's be real clear. This woman, thanks to Sharon's great reporting, this woman was a DPS trooper. Um, and yet we've seen no accountability on their part, no real accountability from the Department of Public Safety. And from the various videos that we've seen on your station before, we know that there was 12 DPS troopers in that hallway. There's still a lot of work to get done here. So there are 12 DPS troopers in the hallway. You heard Shimon reporting that DPS, the Department of Public Safety, is, is going to continue to be in charge of protecting the students. They've been doing that since the, the shooting. Um, do you have a message for parents who are worried about their kids' safety at school? The parents are are very upset, as you know, Jake. They've been upset, and they want accountability from DPS. I mean, obviously, in this transitionary period, we're going to have to have somebody secure the schools. Uh, Those DPS troopers, uh, they they better well be on very high alert and make sure that they're doing their jobs appropriately. More importantly, I think that this community needs to start retooling, reevaluating, reinventing how we do policing, not just at the school district level, but at the city and county level as well. But Let's be clear. We still have a governor who has failed to ask for accountability, Jake. Even yesterday, he put it solely on the school district saying, hey, we sent them a letter and we told them she was under investigation. That is true. That letter was very ambiguous. It didn't say she was under investigation for the incident in Uvalde. Greg Abbott has failed the people in Uvalde. He continues to do so. Steve McCraw, the director of the Department of Public Safety, has failed the people of Uvalde with a constant campaign of misinformation. It's as if we're living in communist Russia. It's very disturbing, Jake. This comes on the heels of of Shimon's report, um, as you noted, uh, that the school police force had hired one of the officers from DPS who did not go inside Robb Elementary School during the shooting, even though she was one of the first on, on the scene. Now, she has been fired because of Shimon's report. But doesn't the decision for her to be hired in the first place suggest that neither the school district 
uh, and the school itself and the police, that none of them are are truly understanding how horrifying it is that all these law enforcement officers were at the school doing nothing while these kids were being massacred. There is a tremendous disconnect with reality on the ground in Uvalde and anything that's coming out of Austin or anything from government in general at any level, the local or the state level. Um, You know, I have been there as much as I can. The media certainly has been there. We've seen great investigative reporting, but it shouldn't be that way. Government is supposed to be able to attempt to solve problems and be transparent with communities. And the biggest thing that has happened in Uvalde, Jake, is the failure in to be transparent. And a lot of that transparency, unfortunately, Jake, in my opinion, has begun from the Department of Public Safety and Steve McCraw's miscommunications to this community. We've got to be able to bring closure to this, but we can't bring closure until we know everything that's out there. I, I fear that there's more. Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, thank you so much. And I just want to remind viewers what this story is really about. This is about 19 children, we're showing you their faces right now, and two adults, teachers, who were gunned down at school. And all of the broken families and parents and siblings and friends after that massacre. Just looking at those faces, may their memories be a blessing. Coming up, two Russians now detained in Alaska. They sailed across the Arctic Ocean in a small boat in order to escape the Russian draft. And they're not alone. We're going to go live in Kazakhstan, where thousands of Russian men have been arriving every day for weeks. Then, the head of the National Women's Soccer League says there are new reports of misconduct that have come out in the days since that bombshell independent report. Stay with us. In Russia, hundreds of thousands of men, would-be conscriptees, are on the run. Putin's new draft has men abandoning their homes and, in some cases, their families in order to avoid fighting a war against Ukraine that they do not support. CNN's Ivan Watson is in Kazakhstan right now, where 200,000 Russians have arrived just this week looking for refuge. Russians abandoning their homeland. Russian President Vladimir Putin's order to conscript men to fight in his war in Ukraine has created an exodus of Russian draft dodgers. They line up daily here in neighboring Kazakhstan to register with the local authorities. The Kazakh government says more than 200,000 Russians fled to this country in less than two weeks. Uh, Yes, we ran away from Russia. Vadim and Alexei fled Moscow last week to escape the draft. We don't want this war, and uh, we not recognize our, of our position, our government. Many of Russia's land borders choked for weeks with long lines as citizens run for the exits. Draft dodgers traveling by land wait days in line or pay big money for scarce plane tickets to escape. And that's just the first step. Every day, more Russians arrive at this train station in Almaty with their backpacks, and they all tell you the same thing. They were afraid they could be sent to fight in Ukraine, and they abandoned their country on very short notice. This married couple left together. Did you come because of the mobilization for the war in Ukraine? It was a final kick to start our 
journey, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Were you, were you afraid that you would have to go fight in the war? Yeah, it's not something I want to participate in. The flood of new arrivals surprising local business owners, like the operator of a co-working space in the center of Almaty. This gentleman just walked in. Is this unusual to see? Very usual. Every day is like this. They come in with huge suitcases because they couldn't find a place for living. And they come in here for working and sitting and, you know, looking for, uh, for some, you know, accommodation. These are fresh arrivals from yeah. Russia. Yeah, yeah. Arriving so with still, a backpack yes. on their back. In this city, hundreds of miles from the Russian border, I spoke with dozens of newly arrived Russians, ranging from doctors. If we refuse to go to this war, we should go to the jail. To engineers, IT specialists, and university students. You ran away from Russia. Yeah, from mobilization, from... Uh, from military service. Yeah, yeah. Most don't want to be identified to protect loved ones still in Russia. How can I take part in the war without a wish to win this war? This man says Putin's draft left him no other choice but to flee the country, leaving his wife and child behind. We do not trust our government. We do not believe in what they say. He says a Russian government crackdown on dissent has made protesting futile, leaving hundreds of thousands of men now suddenly adrift, trying to find work and accommodation in foreign countries. I am the citizen of the country that started that war. I do not support this war, never did. But somehow I'm still connected with the state because of my passport. And I am at the same time a refugee and the aggressor. Russians on the run, sharing a collective sense of hopelessness and guilt over the destruction caused by their government. Now, Jake, it's not just individuals that are fleeing. I'm, I'm hearing from Russians that I'm talking to here in Almaty that uh, they're saying that their bosses have been sending them across border, that uh, in some cases this appears to be the, the corporate policy of some Russian companies to send their employees out to also help them escape the draft. And all of this shows us that there is uh, some serious lack of faith and credibility in the current policies, the war policies of the Kremlin. Jake? All right. Ivan Watson in Kazakhstan, thank you so much. Here in the United States, Russians are beginning to seek asylum to avoid Putin's draft. Earlier this week, two Russian men arrived by boat in Alaska. They apparently departed from Egvechkinat, Russia. They crossed the uh, Berling Strait. They landed on Alaska's St. Lawrence Island. The men were transported to Anchorage to be processed by U.S. immigration. They are asking to stay here in the United States in hopes of avoiding compulsory military service. The Russian embassy in Washington is planning to speak to the two men by phone. Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy says he does not anticipate a, quote, continual stream of Russians into Alaska. Republicans in Wisconsin want the Senate race to be about crime. The Democrats want it to be about abortion rights. But voters told CNN that, to them, it's about something else. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Democrats have targeted Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson as one of the most vulnerable Republicans in the Senate. They've tried to hit him on his opposition to abortion in ads. On the Republican side, more than 60% of TV ad spending against the Democrat has been about crime. That's according to 
ad impact. But as CNN's Omar Jimenez reports, the number one issue of concern for voters in Wisconsin is not abortion, and it's not crime. It's the economy and inflation. There is a lot on the line. At an abortion rights roundtable this week, Wisconsin Democratic Senate candidate Mandela Barnes says abortion and the economy are connected. How do you approach the relationship of those two major issues? Well, it's not even about balancing. I mean, the issue of of inflation is one that's impacting people every day, everywhere, whether a person decides to start a family or not. Its effects are also felt in places like Dino's and Portage, Wisconsin. They say they're not too concerned with politics, but know firsthand how economic issues can make a bad situation worse. We've been closed almost for five months. Over five. Brothers Dino and Nick had to shut down their restaurant in April because of an electrical problem, but then couldn't get the parts they needed because of supply chain issues. So what they thought would last a few weeks turned into months. The first time we were told, like, oh, maybe, you know, about six weeks to, you know, at the longest. Every time when the time comes in, well, the parts are not here. They're pushed back another two weeks or another month. And pretty much we've just been waiting. Meanwhile, prices have gone up. So you're not reopening into the same environment that you were in when no, you closed? No, no. I mean, you look at the prices. The levy comes in, you short five or six items. You know, it hurts. We thought the pandemic was a bad time, but for us, this is what's like triple. But it's not just them. And he took a big sigh, but he said, you know, guess what? It's happening. Steve Sobiak is director of business development in Portage and says this project was supposed to start in February, but couldn't get going until June or July. Supply chain issues really have caused the biggest problem, along with the cost of supplies. It's also hard to find workers. That's what keeps me up at night. If I put a new facility here and they can't find employees, they're not going to be able to stay open. Four more years. Portage sits in Columbia County. Trump carried it in 2020 by just about 500 votes. In the hotly contested race for U.S. Senate this year, the economy might just be the ticket. Senator Ron Johnson tweeting, Wisconsin average gas prices once again have risen above $4, blaming Democratic spending. Barnes says those like Johnson who could do something about it aren't and won't. We should be in the driver's seat once again, but not until we have uh, elected officials who are going to put people here in this state first. Meanwhile, the stakes are livelihoods. Do you know, is it sad walking through there and not seeing people? Yes. Late at night I come around just because that's, I don't know, that's me, you know. No lights, nothing, it's just like, Now, Dino's does plan to finally reopen soon. Meanwhile, here in Milwaukee, we're outside the first of two confirmed debates between Johnson and Barnes. There's been absolutely no daylight between them up to this point in the polls. And it's likely why this race has been one of the top three Senate races when it comes to advertising in the country over the past month. And we'll see if the debate tonight helps move the needle in any way when we're going to hear some of these important issues like abortion, like crime, but also inflation, the economy, education, and more, Jake. All right, Omar Jimenez in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Thanks so much. Let's discuss with my august panel. Casey, let me start with you. So Johnson's campaign has been really laser-focused on attacking Mandela Barnes on the issue of crime. Take a look. 
You can't believe anything Mandela Barnes says. Mandela doesn't want to defund the police. But here's Barnes talking about defunding the police. Defunding isn't necessarily as aggressive as, as a lot of folks paint it. The minute you talk about you know, reducing uh, a police department's budget, and it's like all hell breaks loose. So a, a CNN review uh, by our K-File Investigations Department uh, of Barnes Social Media and Public Comments found that he often signaled support uh, for defunding uh, the police. Is this a vulnerability for him? I think so. I mean, Democrats, you know, there's a reason why they sort of changed their tune. There were a lot of activists in the wake of uh, the George Floyd protests who came out with this. Uh, Initially, there was some embracing of it. But then there were many in Congress, Jim Clyburn, I think is chief among them, who said, hey, guys, this is a really bad political plan. Like, this is not turf that we should be on. And I think you saw the Democratic Party, at least here in Washington, shift its messaging And you're seeing why in this race in Wisconsin, because it is being used against Mandela Barnes pretty effectively, I think, by Republicans. I mean, it's a close race. I will say every source I talk to thinks Ron Johnson really has an edge here and I think would be really surprised if he didn't pull it out. Uh, But that said, you know, it's important to keep running, you know, the campaigns through the tape because you never know. No, I totally agree with Casey's point. Uh, The Democrats knew this was going to be a vulnerability going back to earlier this year. You saw President Biden in the State of the Union give a full-throated denunciation of defund the police, right? What they didn't expect was these reams and reams of videos from the 2020 summer of George, George Floyd videos that Republicans are turning into campaign ads. And you're seeing that take place in Wisconsin, where Mandela Barnes, his, his lead has turned into a, a deficit. You're also seeing it in, in Pennsylvania, where Fetterman's lead over Oz has been essentially halved as well. Yeah, and, and on, the, uh, on the subject of crime, on the Republican side, Senator Johnson was recorded telling an audience this week that the January 6th attack which was criminal, um, was really not that big a deal. Take a listen. To call what happened on January 6th an armed insurrection, I just think it's not accurate. You saw the pictures inside the Capitol. I saw them that day. The, the, the armed insurrectionists stayed through the rope lines in the rotunda. I don't even understand why anybody would be defending this at this point. Oh, well, there's more than 200 Republican candidates running right now who say that they do not believe the last election was legitimate. Some of them even who ran and won in primaries that they refuse to acknowledge as legitimate. So this is clearly something about this is winning with the Republican Party. And overall, 70 percent of Americans right now have said that they feel America is a, a democracy in crisis. It is at risk of failure. Now, Republicans and Democrats get at that for different reasons, but that may not be polling as a number one issue. But it is driving a lot of the activism and energy we're seeing around this midterm election. People staying inside those rope lines is a flat out lie okay (laughs) i was there that day i'm sorry that is not what happened it's of course a lie and what's interesting uh, though jonah and and, uh, is 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 the the hypocrisy here because here you have ron johnson doing seems like a a fair hit on mandela barnes on the crime issue meanwhile he's also defending criminals yeah ron johnson so uh, i think both of these examples on both sides are a really great cautionary tale about the dangers of being held captive by the bubble of your base and the sort of, uh, you know, like Ron Johnson, first of all, he frames it as the armed insurrection so he can get around the fact that, like, a lot of these people weren't using guns. They were just using flagpoles or whatever to bear beat spray. people. And bear, bear spray, spray to beat people exactly. up. But Tucker Carlson wants to hear that, right? The, the very online right Twitter wants to hear that nonsense. And in 2020, the very online uh, left 
wanted to hear defund the police, even though there was zero polling to support that position. And it was the, the this is the consequence you get of pandering to your echo chambers, and you don't know how to get out of it necessarily, because the feedback you get is from the from the most intense people on the spectrum, not the people in the middle who actually want to hear about inflation and the economy. It is also, though, the danger of only um, letting the other side set your message, right? Like crime, the conversation about crime plays into law enforcement Republican strategies at this moment. You have Senator Ron Johnson, where President Biden has gone to Wisconsin, called him out for saying that... uh, what was it, that society is not responsible for taking care of other people's children? This is during discussions about the pandemic funding for children's care and school lunch programs. Uh, he has attacked Social Security, which is a bedrock that typically Republicans and Democrats both agree on for social spending. So that is the advantage that Democrats have if they're able to pivot and talk about what are these economic kitchen table issues. And then, and then meanwhile, on, on the subject of, of learning to speak beyond your, your trying to please the people in your bubble, uh, the Republican uh, Senate nominee in Arizona, Blake Mastis, is learning uh, that that bubble was great for getting him the nomination, right. but it's problematic for getting him uh, into the U.S. Senate. And here he is in a debate um, completely running away from his embrace of Donald Trump's election lies. I think Trump won in 2020. Is Joe Biden the legitimately elected president of the United States? Joe Biden's absolutely the president. I mean, my gosh, have you seen the gas prices lately? Legitimately There's elect, no doubt. Legit, he's du- legitimately I'm not trying elected. to trick you. He's duly sworn and certified. He's the legitimate president. I mean, he just said in his ad that he thought Trump won. And now he's like, oh, no, Biden's legitimate. Yeah, he also was for a complete abortion ban. And then he took that back, too. I mean, this is this, in some ways I can look at this and say nature is healing. Right. You also had Mark Kelly in the same debate kind of running away from Joe Biden about the mess on the border. Both of these guys are realizing that simply having a loyal third or quarter of the electorate in Arizona which is historically a state where independents in the middle decide these elections, is not a strategy. And so they're both, you know, to, I mean, it's more glaring and weird for yeah, Blake I mean, Kelly, Masters. Kelly but. has stuck with, I mean, Kelly has known that and run his campaigns and conducted himself in Washington, like, all the way along that way. I think it's He's messaged that way. I mean, I think it's a fair hit on him to say he hasn't necessarily voted that way. But my only point fair. is, is yeah. that, that, like, Blake Masters or Brian Bolduc in New Hampshire these guys realize, yeah, you're right. This is a great the the conspiracy stuff is a great way to get the nomination in a crowded field. It gets it gets Trump to sort of back you. But then all of a sudden you're like, holy Snikes, I need this is more also voters. In states that do not actually border um, any in our, our border crossings where is why illegal undocumented immigration polls so high. You look at Wisconsin, they're having a debate right now between uh, whether or not ICE should exist, about um, who should get deported and how. You have uh, a sheriff who um, has literally, anytime someone foreign-born comes into uh, his uh, his prison system, he immediately reports them to ICE. I mean, doesn't doesn't care. Yeah, the mayor of New York born. City also just announced the citiwide right, but, emergency but, but because of the That migrant. 5%, that 5% of immigration or immigrant population yeah. and how the rest of Wisconsin and feels about them, the identity of that, it's a pivotal 5% in this election. But I just, I do wonder if, if embracing conspiracy theories is something that you really can't reverse on in the, in the general election. No, absolutely not. What, what we, we're saying Blake Masters do here, I mean, that's a, a hard pivot that he's trying to pull <laughs> off here, similar to what we saw Baldick try to do yeah. a couple of times now up in New Hampshire. Yeah, he pivoted I mean, back a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, this is a proxy battle again of the 2020 presidential election and maybe the 2024 presidential election, right? And so in, in Arizona, you've got 
Kelly, who has been publicly able to distance himself in some ways from Biden, he hasn't shied away. He hasn't necessarily been cinema or mansion, right. but he's been able to, to to at least criticize his party figure. Right. Blake Masters. That's a lot more difficult to do on the Republican side. And you saw that last night in the yeah. debate. Donald Trump lost Arizona. OK. Yep. And he lost the general election. I, I mean, that's the reality. Thanks one and all. Appreciate it. And tonight in a CNN special report, I'm going to t- t- talk one-on-one with key witnesses from the January 6th committee's investigation. American Coup, the January 6th investigation, airs tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up, a second 16-year-old Iranian girl dead after joining the protests against the regime. This time, Iranian officials say she intentionally jumped off the building. Stay with us. Back with our world lead and Iran... The country's oppressive authoritarian theocracy cannot seem to quell the people's uprising now in its third week. Women are gleefully burning their mandatory hijab, incinerating the compulsory cloth that to them symbolizes decades of oppression. So far, more than 1,000 people at least have been arrested, according to a human rights group. And as CNN's Jamana Karaje reports for us now, some girls as young as 16 years old are not making it out of these demonstrations alive. Salam, guys! With a cheerful salam or hello, Serena Ismail Zadeh welcomed people into what she called my whole universe, the video diaries of a 16-year-old. She could be any teenage girl anywhere in the world. Goofing around, dancing, singing, just having fun. But this isn't anywhere in the world. This is the Islamic Republic of Iran, where life's expressions are anything but free. Three months after that video, Serena joined the thousands of Iranian women and girls rising up for their liberties, demanding their rights. Serena was forever silenced on September 23rd. Amnesty International says based on information it has, security forces beat her, striking her on the head with batons, severely beating her to death. Iranian judicial authorities denied she was killed. They say Serena died by suicide, jumping from the roof of her grandmother's home. Their claim just days after they said another 16-year-old protester... Nika Shahkarami, who was found dead in Tehran, also died after falling from a building. Arrests have been made in the investigation of her death. Family members of both girls have appeared on Iranian state media, repeating the government's claim. The UN Human Rights Office told CNN they received reports authorities forced Shahkarami's family to give the interview. Amnesty International says families of victims are being intimidated and harassed into silence. This comes three weeks after the death of Masajina Amini while in the custody of the so-called morality police. On Friday, the government's forensic report blamed the death of the 22-year-old on an underlying medical condition after the operation of a brain tumor as a child. Amini's family repeatedly denied those claims. They say she was healthy. It was police brutality that killed her. They say doctors told them she suffered trauma to the head. Anger over Amini's death sparked a women's uprising like no other in Iran. Too many lives already lost in this battle for freedom, for change.
شما مگه محصلی مثل من و کلن یه تانم خیلی کمی داری واسه اینکه از زندگی بتونی لذت ببری بشین کار حتما بکن And Jake, the United Nations and human rights organizations have been calling for an independent and impartial investigation into the deaths of these young women, as well as all human rights violations taking place in Iran right now. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to the cousin of Masa Jina Amini, and he told me the Iranian government investigating her death was essentially the criminal investigating their own crime. Jake? Indeed. Jemana Karadze, thank you so much for that report. The New York City mayor is taking a drastic step to deal with the influx of migrants from border states being sent into New York City. That's next. New York City's mayor wants federal and state funding to help take care of the record number of asylum seekers arriving in the Big Apple. Mayor Eric Adams declared a state of emergency for his city today. He claimed the migrant crisis will cost the city $1 billion this year, and it's straining the city's already taxed shelter system. CNN's Polo Sandoval is in New York City for us right now. Polo, Mayor Adams says more than 17,000 asylum seekers have been bussed in from southern border states such as Texas since April. And Jake, having covered this influx already for months here in New York City, I can tell you that there was certainly this uh, increased sense of urgency coming from New York City Mayor Eric Adams today as he basically updated us on the situation. The latest numbers now showing that at least, or at least just over 17,000 asylum seekers have arrived here in New York City since earlier this spring. Now they've seen roughly 61,000 individuals seeking shelter in New York City's shelter system. Now we should point out that is a mix of both homeless New Yorkers and some of these thousands of asylum seekers. But nonetheless, it is certainly continuing to put pressure on the city's ability to respond. And that's why what we heard today was perhaps some of the most deliberate language that we have heard from Mayor Eric Adams and directly calling out the federal government, calling for more action, including more funding and also an expedited, an expedited path for some of these migrants to secure employment, to basically pay their way into a job and into some housing to bring some relief. Uh, but we also do remind viewers that these migrants are coming by many means. Some are still taking up offers from Republican governors for a free ride, but a vast majority of them continue to come up on their own. And many of them, at least 7,700 being bused here by the city of El Paso. And we heard today, Jake, was the mayor here sending a message to the mayor of El Paso, also a Democrat, that that needs to stop. Our shelter system is now operating near 100% capacity. And if these trends continue, we will be over 100,000 in the year to come. That's far more than the system was ever designed to handle. This is unsustainable. Now, in terms of the efforts that are being led by the city of El Paso, uh, uh, my colleague Rosa Flores speaking to the city, in fact, the uh, city's deputy manager, with a statement saying that the migrants are selecting New York City. The city of El Paso is not selecting New York City and then goes on to say that nobody is being forced or enticed to actually choose uh, New York City as their destination. But we heard today from uh, the mayor, though, Jake, is he's certainly in a very difficult position here, calling on fellow Democrats not only in other cities, but also in the White House, that this is an all-hands-on-board situation. Jake. All right, Paula Sandoval in New York for us. Thank you so much. A bombshell report 
outlining multiple accusations of sexual, emotional, and verbal abuse by coaches in the Women's National Soccer League. And now the head of the league says there are even new reports of misconduct. Stay with us. In our sports lead, a moment of solidarity you're seeing right there for the national women's soccer teams for both England and the United States. The players wearing teal-colored armbands, holding up, holding up a teal flag, taking a knee right before the match. Teal is the color associated with sexual assault awareness. All of this comes after an investigation found widespread abuse, including sexual misconduct, within the U.S.-based National Women's Soccer League. Let's bring in CNN's Andy Schultz. Andy, we've heard outrage from some key U.S. players about these revelations of abuse. What's the U.S. soccer president saying? Well, Jake, Cindy Parlo-Cohn is saying the one good thing to come out of this report is that now more players are speaking up. She said three more players have come forward uh, with stories of things that have happened to them and their stories, you know, finally being heard after just years where players were just ignored when they brought forth their allegations. But Cohn's saying that, you know, they're going to have to make many changes to address all these problems. This was systemic. And so we have to do the work um, with all of our membership and all of the NWSL and our other professional leagues to make sure that we put things into place and take immediate actions um, as well as actions over the next year to really make sure we can change this dynamic and make sure that no woman or girl, regardless of the level of play, is subjected to this abuse. And this just did... Now, the NWS... Go ahead, Jake. I was just going to say, this just in, um, uh, we're hearing from the NFL Players Union, which is pushing for new protocols on how the league handles concussions. The union wants that change before games this weekend? Yeah, that's that's what they're saying. And, you know, everyone was kind of wondering, what's the holdup right here? We had heard that these new concussion protocols were going to supposed to come out before week five started. Week five started on Thursday night. Uh, still nothing, but the NFL Players Association just released a statement moments ago. I'll read it to you. It says, our union... Uh, has agreed to change the concussion protocols to protect players from turning to play in the case of any similar incident of what we saw on September 25th. Now, September 25th is when Tua stumbled but still came back into that game and played against the Bills. Uh, The statement goes on to say, we would like these changes to go into effect before this weekend's games to immediately protect the players and hope the NFL accepts the change before then as well. And, you know, Jake, we had heard that the NFL wanted – uh, the you know the term gross motor instability. That's when we saw Tua stumble. We saw Naheem Hines for the Colts stumble last night, leave the game with a concussion. You know he never came back. But they want that to be a no go to return to play. That means you know even if it is still not deemed a head injury, say it, it's a gross motor instability because of a knee, because of a back, like they ended up saying was the case in Tua's uh, condition against the Bills. They want it to be a no go regardless of whether it's head trauma or anything else. And, Jake, I don't think anyone is going to fault the NFL for being overly cautious when it comes to player safety. No, I agree. Well, some people will, but those people are morons. Andy Schultz, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up this Sunday on CNN State of the Union, I'm going to talk to Virginia Governor Republican Glenn Youngkin, plus Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut and former Governor and former Ambassador Bill Richardson in his first interview since his trip to Russia to try to get back American detainees Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Starting next week, through the midterms, I'll be joining you at 9 p.m. Eastern with special guests and the kind of stories you might not be used to seeing here on The Lead. But The Lead will continue. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you Sunday morning.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.